Stephen Page began his career in bookselling before moving into publishing. In 1994, he joined Fourth Estate, becoming managing director in 2000. In 2001, he joined Faber as CEO, and in 2006, Faber won Publisher of the Year. He has been president of the Publishers Association and gave the keynote address for World Book Day in 2007. Faber won Independent Publisher of the Year in 2011 and 2018. He writes and speaks on the issues of independence in the industry and the effects of fast-moving technological developments on libraries, authors, and publishing. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Again, I'd like to invite Jeffrey Faber into the room. And uh, with your indulgence, this is going to take a, a, little, a little while. That's okay. You'll notice that I have that very book on my uh, wall. Yes, and I've noticed that you, I've noticed that you've referenced it occasionally in mm. some of your articles. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So you'll know that he starts off our publishers any use <laughs> with a uh, characterization of a publisher. One one of the images of the publisher in the public mind. So mm. it's so well written. <laughs> And so accurate or inaccurate, depending on where you sit. And this in light of the fact that Faber has just won the, the booker. Right, yes. Yeah. In the popular imagination, we publishers are a race apart. We live by ourselves on the top of Mount Parnassus, by our secret and rather wicked arts, ruling the ebb and flow of the literary tides far below us. Like gods on a neighboring mountain, we disport ourselves in graceful ease, quaffing nectar prepared for us by the authors and authoresses privileged to enjoy our society. <laughs> when we descend from the heights, it is to enter a world entirely different from that which ordinary people inhabit a world of grand literary passions in which bestsellers flame like comets across the sky, dropping gold at our feet, and the ground is perpetually shaken by thundering herds of passing masterpieces. In this portentous world, we are astonishingly and enviably at home, eyeing the masterpieces calmly as they gallop by, throwing our magic lasso about our chosen quarry and riding it triumphantly to our private stables. Such are our more violent sports. In our softer moments, we turn aside to enter a more human, but still a far from ordinary world. We have it equally in our power to crown the career of the elder statesman or to lift the schoolgirl turned novelist to the eminence of a Hollywood star, or if we're not feeling like that, a whole vista of ex exhilarating gaieties is open to us. We can lunch with philosophers, have tea with biographers, drink cocktails with novelists, dine with poets, and spend the evening with adventurers. Does that describe your, uh, your existence after the Booker win? <laughs> 
Well, of course, he's very funny in that some of that is part of the truth. All it's a wonderful yeah. profession. Of course. And, of course, the other the, the, the thing he's hinting at in that is that most of our day is nothing like that. Most of our day is about the, 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 you know, the uneven struggle to make sense of the company, of staying in business, of finding those writers who are going to define what you are and what you do, and that they, once in a while, one of them, two of them, will find extraordinary success. And publishing, the business of publishing is about this unevenness. Whenever anyone sort of examines publishing or looks into it, they often say, you know, you just need to publish fewer books and you need to publish more of the successful ones. Well, that's what he says. Yeah. In fact, in that essay, as you know, he says the problem with publishing is there are too many publishers and far too many books. And we were talking about Frederick Warburg. Frederick Warburg says the same thing. He says, you know, in 1930-something, he says, if only other people didn't publish so many books, if only booksellers bought more of my books, and if only the media paid more attention, you say, well, you know, Wake up in 2018, and we're all saying the same things. As yeah. Jeffrey said, as, uh, as as Frederick said, as lots of those... Michael Joseph Michael said, yeah. yeah, in his adventures in publishing. Yeah, Because I suppose one of the strange things about publishing is that the cost of getting a book off the ground is relatively small compared to the cost of getting a movie off the ground mm-hmm. or getting an album recorded by five musicians that one of the great challenges of publishing is keeping your catalogue narrower. Uh, and every publisher who goes through a tough patch, one of the first things they say is, we need to publish fewer books. And, and spend more time on each spend one. Spend more time on each one. And, yeah. and of course, success breeds a certain slackening of that. So you end up suddenly, you go through a period of success and you often wake up with a slightly widened catalogue, slightly dis distributed effort so and not the luck that you had when you went through the period of success and I think one of the great challenges of publishing is to keep your your your, your humility and mm-hmm. to keep some sense that of, of sort of normality underneath the winding story of success and and uh, less success you know because some of that success is not down to you except for the fact that you were still alive and publishing and good at it and that's equally true sometimes when you're going through tough times. It's not necessarily what you're doing. It's not necessarily your thought, your fault. And, and I guess those two, those peaks and troughs, one of the skills of managing and running a publishing house is to be able to look your colleagues and yourself in the eye and work out whether it is something you're doing that is leading to less success and whether you have learned something special that you can reapply and therefore put your foot to the floor. So when Paul Hamlin cracks, the mass market use of colour in different yeah. formats and whenever it was, the early 70s, yeah. late 60s. The Czechoslovakia, right? He yeah, went to that's Czechoslovakia. right. Well, the Czech nation yeah. gave itself to Paul Hamlet, whatever the story is. <laughs> yeah. He put his foot to the floor and he created a kind of a dominant business, really. And I think that's because that's about technological breakthrough. But it's also, I mean, the fact that he founded in Czechoslovakia yeah, that's that's interesting too. And mm. he searched out. Uh, mm. Yeah, a great the technology, a brilliant entrepreneur. You know, one of yeah. the most brilliant entrepreneurs in publishing history, and a philanthropist too. I was a recipient as a kid of those color books, the how and what and which or whatever they were called. And in it was a Dorling Kindersley of my childhood. Was that moment of 
exploding excitement on the page of, of colour books that were inform, informative. So, you know, it's, it's cultural as well. And technology, I mean, we obviously as a publishing business have just been through a, a rapid period of societal change around a shift in technology, into mm. digital technology. It, it's, it's surprising how little that has transformed some aspects of publishing. Mm. You know, because the, the, the technology of the book, which is 400 or so years old, its ver- variable nature, its, its, its elasticity mm-hmm. to serve the purposes of many, many different things around entertainment, information, literature, poetry, whatever you want to, you know, it's so fascinating that it's been so resilient, that technology, in a period of acute challenge to other technologies which have been, largely speaking, supplanted, you know, um, mm-hmm. that actually digital technology has has amplified and added to the range of reading, but it has not supplanted the book. It's at about a piece of what, 20, 25% thereabouts? It depends on the business. And you yeah. know, for Faber, I can tell you it's, um, it's currently... It, it'll have rocketed up now because we have a book that has won the Man Booker Prize and therefore that book went to number one on Kindle straight away, like mm-hmm. that, same yeah. day. So that market, if you like, that audience staring into the small marketplace called Kindle, small window, huge mm. market, but small window. Literally so, a window. Yeah, it is, yeah. literally. And to surface a book in there that goes into, you know, many thousands of sales at a value that is supportive of the writer's success, you know, so our dial moves up and down. Recently, we've been at about 12 to 13% of our business in value terms. It has been through ebook. Volume is probably more like 20, 25%. Maybe the fact that your books are so beautiful, to, they, they feel so good. You know, you've, mm. done, you've done a great job with these paperbacks of uh, mm. Thank you. producing something that, pe- uh, you know, I just want to grab a hold of. Mm. Well, and I think the other thing is that, of course, there's an idea that a new technology turns up and everything else stands still. I would say that our obsession about the beauty of analogue, you know, of our, our print books, is in response to the extraordinary nature of digital technology, which is convenient. Uh, you know, in many ways, the extraordinary experiment that Kindle was is about a, a shop in your hand the whole time with an enormous amount of literature and mm-hmm. you know, in it. You so, don't have to lug 30 books along no. to the beach. Or, or, or journey anywhere, or even really open your, uh, your, you know, your computer and have a look on Amazon. You are there in the environment, and it's a reading and shopping environment. Mm. It's not just a book reading environment. So that's sort of come alongside the world of books. It's not on it's not instead of, it's alongside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has created a sort of response. And our response was to say, if you're going to make a commitment to a physical book, we are we have to make that seduction strong. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to pour back our artisanal impulses into making beautiful books more often. And, you know, certainly you mentioned paperbacks, you know, certainly some parts of the market became very commodified, uh, in, particularly in the UK once price, you know, network agreement went. 1995, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it led to a pouring into the market of massive reach for a handful of books, but at a plunging uh, price received. Mm. So, of course, the pressures on 
uh, on, on the how people were making books meant that the quality of books was falling and um, costs were falling down in order to support a margin that would give you the opportunity to reach the very furthest reaches of the market into supermarkets and all that. Mm. And I think we woke up somewhere in the mid-noughties uh, and when digital returned to say, you know what, we've forgotten something about ourselves. We've forgotten that publishing is a handcrafted business, although with mass production, you know, but... Well, in fact, Jeffrey says that the publisher must be economical and produce something that is, in its way, a work of art. Hmm. Beautifully put. We've just published Barbara Kingsolver's new novel, Unsheltered. And I wish I had a copy I could show you. Hmm. But we, we sort of sat back and said to ourselves, you know, of course it'll be a magnificent novel, and of course we'll have a huge interest in all of our markets. But let's make something that really is is sort of saturated in the story of in, in in the place that Barbara puts you in the book, and that was to do with a house that is tumbling down, that has been there for over a hundred years, that two timelines exist in this house. So we printed a sort of wallpaper on the on the. Uh, sprayed edge on on the on the f the front end of the book, mm -hmm. and we also put a different colour onto the top and bottom. We put head and tail bands on it. We put beautiful end papers on it, and you know, on the basis of that alone, the sort of social media exploded once we started yeah. to show people this. They hadn't read the book yet. Mm -hmm. We made a work of art out of Barbara's work of art. Yes, and uh, and and I just feel that there's some deep nourishment that goes on when, when book buyers lift something that honours the work of art itself and mm -hmm. somehow amplifies the reader's own excitement. So we're all readers in this building. Mm -hmm. And when we picked that book up, we, you know, I, 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 it landed in my hands and I walked around the whole building showing it to everybody. Not because I was trying to get them to up their numbers, you know, just because I felt so proud of the thing we had made. Yeah. It was such a brilliant piece of design and work. So what you're telling me then is that this generation of book buyers, and, and this this goes contrary to what uh, Glenn Horowitz, the uh, archive dealer in mm. New York, told me. He was concerned that this generation, they're not uh, so connected to the book as object as our generation is. Mm. You're telling me that that's not the case. There seems to be a real response to yeah. this work of art. I think so, you know, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to do the sort of demographics of that. Collectors, I guess, I mean, you know. Yeah, maybe, I mean, I think, yeah, I couldn't really comment on the collectors well. That may mm. be the case, but it's not our experience in terms of the return to a high street that is, that is, it has an experience attached to the business of shopping. Now that might sound sort of dreadfully middle class, Mm. But maybe that is the truth of it. But certainly, when you know, there's been an upswing in openings of independent stores. Yeah, and those stores themselves are clearly very design heavy. You know, the shops themselves are highly mm. individual. They have a look and a feel and a smell. They're artisanal in other ways. You know, there's a, a, a absolutely wonderful um, shop called Main Street Trading you know, up in um, the Borders. They have a delicatessen, they have an event space, it's all in this beautiful old sort of coaching 
in. Uh, they have a light and beautiful bookshop. It's a pleasant experience books, and they have a to be there. Coffee shop. It's. I mean, I would drive there yeah. once a year, probably just. It's to a shop. destination. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. Now, now that's not the whole book market, no. but for Faber, especially where the beginnings of things for us. Mm -hmm. are, are a lot of where our energy goes, you know, to start the process by which readers begin to discover an original voice. If you like Milkman, the yep. Booker Prize uh, winning novel, you know, we got the rocket fuel of all rocket fuel for her. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like we weren't working really hard already to get people reading that book and trying to break it through and um, an exceptional novel that we deeply believed in. And then the rocket fuel happens. And what's so interesting is that some of its originality sparks off the world in that some people say, I don't know what to make of this. I, I, I'm finding it, there's this thing that is challenging and difficult. Because really, Milkman is not a challenging and difficult book. It's a brilliant and original book. And of course, anyone who actually begins the business of reading Milkman finds that out straight away. But there's always been opposition to originality. And, and, and of course, our best partners have always been bookshops and the media they have always been the place where we go first to say read it read it put this into your hands and read it wise publishers take every opportunity to make friends with those who sell his books jeffrey you're making me i should just reread jeffrey he says it all so elegantly but you're, yeah. that, that is it, that we are in, in ecology. Yeah. I think one of the things about the disruption of digital and the rumour of it that felt quite sort of antagonistic to the ecology of reading, there were all sorts of rumours that we were all going to die and that we were legacy businesses. This word that's rolled out as meaning dead, really, mm. um, because it's specific to software. Legacy software doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So these, this term that was levelled at the media industries generally, and then it came our way, uh, I guess, I don't know, 2007, And, of course, my view is I'll take, I'll take being a legacy business. Thank you very much. If you've got people like uh, <laughs> yeah. Faber as your progenitor. That's right. And also, but the word legacy means something different to us. Uh, and it's that legacy of trust and relationship and, and a depth of publishing, a backlist, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And um, there's something here, I think, about the not forgetting the unchanging things uh, and that relationship mm. with other mm -hmm. people. So the publisher alone, standing in their own space, is in many ways, uh, you know, acts as a pathway between the reader and the writer. And, and the writer needs investment, so publishers invest in writers. And you, you have support. to provide value for the writer. Yeah. Why would they license us? Otherwise. You know, the, the, the thing that's very rarely said to p people joining the industry is that you know, publishing is a filing cabinet full of licenses. Everything else comes from that. Mm -hmm. you know, those licenses are an originator, you know, a, somebody putting in our hands their intellectual property on the basis that we can make more value for them than they could make for themselves. We take a share of their income. You take all the risk to start with, though. You put the money up. And that, of course, is one of the things that the, one of the things we do, and we're experts in all sorts of things. And I think one of the challenges to that came with the, you know, uh, e-books. There's been a lot of independent authors who have emerged, and publishing companies of one, the writer themselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think it was a, a, an unnecessary kind of them and us emerged around that. Mm -hmm. To my view, they're mm -hmm. just doing what we do, 
and they do it their own way with their own work. Right. Why would we be in any way in opposition to that? It's you're just, competing in a sense. Well, maybe, but but, but no you're also offering with each other. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, you're, you're also offering them another. Well, not offering. You, the, not very many people get the opportunity to work with you. That's true, and I suppose we never took the view here that independent authors and uh, and publishing themselves was anything other than a natural kind of part of the Pantone that is writing and publishing. Mm-hmm. She publishes create a, a pathway of value. Value is about money, yep. in some degree. Number one. But there's all them. sorts of other value. And like value, what? I would say value is about uh, being part of something. You know, So writers being part of a community of writers has always been true at Faber. So, you know, the... Faber poets or yeah. the writers at Faber and Faber's community has always gone beyond the bounds of just the writers we publish. But part of something is is being able to celebrate with fellow poets and writers. What I is think, it? I think to see your work in 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 the in relationship to other work is often valuable. So you know that FF colophon on people's spines has meaning because of what it means elsewhere. So it's pride as much as anything, yeah. I would think. But not just be- simply because of. Us. It's to do with the choices we've made editorial over ninety years, yeah. nearly ninety years. So, you know, obviously, even so, we, we have a, a very strong rock and roll list. So many of the, uh, the the artists in the rock and roll world look to our poetry publishing and our fiction publishing has has deep meaning for them. And so, to be part of that story, to be published by Faber mm. in the company of that story, brings. More than what we'll, more than what they'll earn out of it. For doing. sure. Oh yeah. There's a truth yeah. to it. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a. There's a validation to it. Yeah, there is that. There is that. Yeah. But you know, I also want to be careful not to overstate that. In as much as, you know, a publisher still has to be expert about creating an audience and getting that audience to remunerate the author. No matter how strong Faber's cultural presence is, if we weren't good at all of those other things, then we would diminish that cultural value. I feel like the, the interesting thing about Faber over all of its history is the degree to which we have been pragmatic about uh, making sure we publish commercially as well as in a, in a literary uh, uh, environment so that we are here next year and the year after and the year after. You know, yep. Of all the Bloomsbury publishing houses, Faber is the only one with a single line of ownership. You know, most yeah. of the ones who were our fellow publishers in the 1930s are now imprints. Excellent imprints, but they're not in, they're not standalone independent publishing houses with their own identity and their own culture. And that's in large part thanks to Cats. Well, Cats played its part during. I mean, it's, Cats is an interesting story, isn't it? Because again, that's about risk. You know, that book was introduced without everything that one might have wanted to know about it. It was introduced anonymously originally by by Elliot, <laughs> and and was published. Then quite hesitant, you know, we, we took some time to publish it, um, but of course everyone recognised it was brilliant, and it's one of those things about cats' poems, old possums. No one's ever been able to tell me whether it's for children or for adults or mm, for mm. giving or for. It's just a set of charming, funny, you know, brilliant poems, and therefore that original editorial impulse is what is at the heart of it. Suddenly turning up. Without, it's almost like the most extreme example of you never quite know what. Could happen. What can happen. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it's an optimistic story. So yeah. during the 1980s, yes, we had a very strong rights income from Cats the Musical. But it, interestingly, it sits alongside an extraordinary flowering 
of Faber's publishing mm. to bring a whole new generation of writers to the list alongside the existing canon. Mm-hmm. So when Matthew Evans was leading the company and Robert McCrum was here as his sort of uh, as, a, as his editorial partner, you know, in a very short space of time, Robert's genius brought to the list writers, you know, who are now associated as central Peter Carey and Kazuo Shiguru. Um, Nobel Prize winning. Absolutely, yes. You guys, uh, you guys have done it all. We've had a recently yeah, too. That's and that in itself is also uh, exciting because the other truth about it's all very well having a canon of great writers that have come to you over a long period of time. I think continuing to satisfy those writers mm. that you are publishing them in the moment now. You know, one of the really striking and moving things about Kazuo Shiguri's re- reception of the Nobel Prize was his his lecture. And in the moment of his reception, he says, "But it's about who writes the interesting stuff now." Mm. And that's where he ends his his lecture. He mm-hmm. he stands away from it and doesn't say, "Don't honour." the greats just because they're great. Honour the great work now. And I, I think, you know, in Ezra Pound said it, you know, make it new. Faber mm-hmm. so published Pound. We do, yeah, yeah. we do, indeed. We do. One of the interesting things about the sort of great success that we're enjoying as a company right now is that we feel like we have somehow managed to retune our dial to be really exciting around the writing that's going on now, but not just a young generation. It's across... All of our writers, you know, there just seems to be something in the world that has resulted in that. Well, it's about your editorial, which involves criticism, revision, and initiation, but most important, selective judgment. Mm. Yeah. So... Taste. I think hmm. at this stage, when you look at the history of Faber, of course, on one level, you tell the story of editors, you know, and of course, one doesn't want to diminish the roles that all departments play in a publishing company but at its heart strong confident brilliant editorial leadership is the story you you tell even though you came out of sales came straight out of sales and uh loved being in sales you yeah. Know? yeah and when i came you know when i first approached the thought that i might want to work in publishing of course i thought editorial would be my route and i thought you know uh, i always had batter paper back in my pocket and I ended up stumbling into a sort of marketing job got in and in that job I ended up having a lot to do with the sales area and then I got another similar job that's where the money is it's not in editorial well, <laughs> if there is any money in the publishing yeah, business yeah. well I think more to the point is that I, I started to realize that selling in publishing is is one very close up to the work, or my version of doing it was about reading, about understanding, about relationships. So about understanding what you sell. Yeah, really understanding what the opportunity could be. And, you know, I think salespeople have also to be critical and optimistic. They, they carry this rather challenging position of needing to be the realists. Because every book that comes towards the acquiring table is positioned as being the outlying success in its category. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Everything has to be brought with hope. And yourself... Yeah, now I should say that there's a fine line between hope and bullshit. Because the thing that bothers me is all of the superlatives that come out about every single book out Mm. there. It debases the language. Yeah. I um I picked up a book 
which had a blurb on the back which began, not since Anna Karenina, and I put it straight down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite blurb on the back of any book ever, I won't tell you who it was about, was, this book is for anyone who's ever been a parent or a child. <laughs> that is literally everybody. And I, yes, I, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I too, I hate that kind of over... But you get it everywhere. Yeah. It's like every book has it. It's the language of now, isn't it? And I mean, you know, the, the funny thing about reading T.S. Eliot's blurbs on books is that they're so moderate and intelligent. Mm. And you can't... I almost wonder if we shouldn't experiment again because mm. I've read blurbs on Faber's books saying, you know, despite some, you know, uh, it taking some time to, to bring this collection together, we do recommend it to you. you know? <laughs> that's, that's on the book itself, you know. Yeah. And I think there's something brilliant about the scepticism of that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because I agree with you that if everything's, if everything's, you know, a super lead, you know, where, how does the reader distinguish? But yeah. that's why I think, you know, what we write about books is becoming more and more a centre of the skill of publishers because so much is available online and so much of that is based on publisher metadata and mm -hmm. so much of that metadata is written absolutely at the front line when you've just bought a book and it's often written by editorial assistants mm. or editors, not so often by marketeers. You know, so the editor's skills are changing in as much as you have to be mindful from the outset about the fact that probably every word you write in a digital world has the possibility of being read by a reader. So does that mean everything is hype? No, I think that means everything has to be well written and intelligent and, uh, and, and arm the reader with enough to know. Of course it goes through other incarnations where we, we create selling copy, you know, slightly more consumer focused copy. But actually, every piece of copy we write that we, you know, forms the basis of what we pump out into the world. Mm -hmm. And every night, you know, a feed goes out of here full of zeros and ones carrying our words about our books and populates the internet. Yeah. That's the thing that's refreshing about the Amazon reviews. People shit on books. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. most of them are not really worth reading, but. And I don't spend a lot of time doing it, but at, at least there's some degree of honesty. I think the, the least useful uh, thing in, the, in, the, in the, the wisdom of the crowd is the average star mm. rating for books. Because yeah. I, I often <laughs> think that you know, Faber had to choose a new name for itself. We'd choose five star, one star. You know, because have yeah. a look at Samuel yeah. Beckett's reviews. You know, it, there's the people who get it and the people who just don't. I, I, I prefer that that sort of wisdom of the crowd was a bit that the presentation of that were a bit wiser. Yeah. Because you don't know who's shitting on your book, you know. No. And I why mean, they're shitting on your book and where they're coming from in their view. And why they're praising, and who's praising it. Could be all their friends, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, from the moment he began, begins to say to himself, perhaps this is worth publishing, questions come up under production, crown or demi octavo, seven and six or ten and six. Caslon or imprint. What other questions under production come up for you when you think, mm, maybe we could publish this book? Yeah, well, I suppose your first production-wise, I suppose, you start by saying, where does this book fit in our imagination? And then, you know, formats. So formats are, I mean, <laughs> we've all spent an unreasonable amount of our publishing lives discussing things like 
tray paperback or hardback? You know, and there's, a, you know, if we stopped a reader in the street and said, tray paperback or hardback? I think they'd look at you like you were insane. Right. Um, and there was a long time when there was arguments about the fact that hardback was a media-friendly thing. You, know, you would only get reviewed in hardback. and yeah. All these sort of notions out there. Yeah. But there is something about creating energy around every publication. Yeah. Sometimes formats can help you with that. So if you look at a book like Lullaby by Leila Slimani that we published in January this year, pre-Goncourt winning French novel. Now, there have been plenty of pre-Goncourt winning French novels that have not sold very well in mm -hmm. the UK. But we approach this in a, uh, with a trade paperback with flaps, not a hardback. Why? I think we just felt we wanted to differentiate it. It was a very strong book. First line of the book is, the baby is dead. Line one. And then you're into the story of how and why. Yeah. And so we went out to create, I suppose, a more mobile, younger, you know, a, a moment when you could feel that the main sale of the book might happen around this edition. But because there was something to get at, a wonderful writer, very eloquent, Macron made her his sort of ambassador for the French yeah. language not long afterwards. And so I suppose formats and production become almost within your own palette. You're trying to create a bit of difference so that you yourself can say, well, that's this one and this one's that one. You don't automatically go out with a hardcover then. No. Not necessarily. A lot, a lot of a lot of publishers do. They, they it's automatic. It's a hardcover, and then it's a paperback. Yeah, and I think probably we err towards the hardback mm. in that I would say, even though it's more expensive and you're pumping yeah. all that publicity into it, you'd probably be able to sell a hell of a lot more paperbacks. You may with all that yeah. publicity. Well, I think it's sometimes about whether you feel that you've got to create a big impact with the first moment in bookshops. Or you say, I'm totally confident of creating two moments here. Now, the funny thing with the lullaby, Leila Slimani, is we created two colossal moments. But that came from the impact of the first publication. So I suppose what you try to avoid in your first thinking about how we're going to publish this is any complacency, any kind of stillness. You want to create excitement, energy, difference, noise. Mm. So, of course, the second step, of course, is how you're going to make it look. That then, so the design conversation is, is, is an absolutely primary one because that then may influence format. So sometimes the sheer design brief, the response of designers can say, I think this would work best if we took it to a small format, made it chunky, made it rather than let's have a rather thin royal hardback that looks elegant and sits perfectly state, in a stately way in a bookshop, you know. So I think that first conversation is about beginning to light the fire of this book's space in the world. How is it going to occupy room in a crowded world and, and, and draw the eye, you know, and when it's picked up? So another of a, a, a favourite uh, moment in my own publishing career was, was when um, Christopher Potter was the editorial director of Fourth Estate. So we're in 1995. And I'm sitting at my desk as sales director, and he'd been to New York. And he walked over to my desk and lent him in his rather brilliantly uh, sort of wry and funny way and said, close your eyes and put out your hand. And I said, that's not a very good impersonation of him, brother. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it right, sounds like, so right, yeah. it sounded good to and me. And I said, uh, what? You know, don't be an idiot. He said, close your eyes and put out your hand. So I did. And he put a book into my hand. Uh, and that book was Longitude. And I felt this book. And he said, so what can you sell of that? And I said, come on, Christopher, give me, 
give me more. Tell, give me a one line. And he said, uh, it's the story of a British chronologer who discovered longitude. And I felt this little book in my hand because mm. it had been published by Walker Books in America already. And there were two things. One, it felt very familiar to me somehow and very, very desirable. And I just said, well, British history, 10,000. And he grabbed, thanks very much. And he went off and he acquired Longitude for seven and a half thousand pounds. And we sold 600,000 hardbacks a year later at 12 quid in that little format. And the interesting coda to that story is, so one brilliant piece of acquiring by Christopher. Mm. Secondly, he knew that the object was part of this story. And the object was an A format hardback and even a little bit narrower than A. It was an American size. Mm. So it felt different but familiar. And it was the same format that we at Fourth Estate had published the Stone Diaries in when it was shortlisted for the Booker. And George Gibson at Walker had seen that format and taken it for longitude. <laughs> full circle. So it came full circle back to us. <laughs> That's Carol Shields. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Canadian. Exactly, Canadian. That book, Stone Diaries, again, is a book where the format changed the perception of her as a writer in some way and that book at the same time. Collision I've got a copy. It's a, it's a Governor General award-winning book. Oh, gosh, right, yeah. And I collect Governor General's awards, so well, I'm familiar you know. with it. Uh, the interesting thought, just to take that story on one more, is that then Longitude taught us something about narrative non-fiction. And so that was followed by Fermat's Last Theorem, my Simon Singh's book, of which we sold nearly a quarter of a million copies. And that was a cut down to my. So we knew we needed to make a format, but we couldn't just slavishly make another longitude. We made a different format and we brought it down. And again, in some way... So you think that, that if, if it had been a different format, you wouldn't have had the success? I don't know. I don't know. You know but for us as a company, yeah. it became a kind of calling card. of Don't think of this as a book about mathematics. Yeah. Think of it as a relation to longitude that is about mathematics puzzle solving mm. and Fermat's theorem and this is a new writer called Simon Singh mm. and the market just hoovered it up we followed mm. it with the diving bell and the butterfly in around the same time again we did something rather elegant and beautiful with that mm. shorter book so I feel like maybe this is a publisher telling a story to itself but what I got from that story was that you you really do the, the electric eel stays really mobile it's that, it's that Woody Allen story about um, in Annie Hall where He's trying to tell Annie that their relationship's over. And he says, his relationship's a bit like a shark. A shark has to keep swimming to stay alive. Right. Annie, what we have is a dead shark. And uh, I think publishing is just like that. It's a permanently, it's a muscular process the whole time. And formats help you to signal change and signal imagination. So there's something, therefore, I think a sort of slavish, we do everything in Royal and B. I think as, a, as an ex-salesperson, so then you've got to do some work to distinguish. So as a reader, I also think you probably have to... If you look at a table full of books that look pretty much the same, mm. that's somehow... These don't. No, you're looking at my table now, and, and mm. you know, we, we, we do spend time on it. And sometimes we kid ourselves, that we, we, we sort of spoof ourselves, that we're somehow spending a lot of time doing something that nobody notices. But I don't think that's true. And that gets back to the question of how how connected is this generation of readers to format and the object? Well, and I suppose, what does it take to fall in love with the book as object? And I, I you know, yes, okay, I grew up in a house which had quite a lot of books in it, but I don't say that music was the thing in my childhood. 
and I, I wouldn't say that it was there that I learned my love of books. I think it was, you know, a lot of my love of books came from crawling second-hand bookshops for old penguins. Yeah, yeah. my dad took me around to a bunch of old bookstores when I was young. I mean, mm. I, and I would recall being fairly bored at the time, yeah. but obviously it had a huge impact because I spent so much time in, in used bookstores. All that books are is a sort of is an agnostic technology for, for transporting ideas and stories and information. Mm. And that works well with the fact that the ebook has come along. It's just, yeah, uh, it carries it carries in mm. a different way. It, yeah. it, it's it's shed some of the what, what might by some people thought to be the cumbersome apparatus of carrying around those ideas. Mm. So for some people, that liberation of digital is that reading is now so unencumbered. It's so kind of portable and uh, and so immediate. But for some, the, the, the cultural experience of opening, of buying, of owning a book brings with it nourishing things that are cultural. The other thing that comes to, to mind when uh, saying to yourself, perhaps this is worth publishing, are questions about content. Is it too long, too short? Is this passage redundant, obscure, offensive, libelous? What else comes to your mind when, uh, when you think about content of a manuscript? Hmm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the areas that you've just outlined that Geoffrey put his finger on, no doubt. You know, I, I think that there's, there's a danger in publishing of trying to find yesterday again tomorrow. You know? So those questions of is it too long, is it too short, is it... You know, I, I find that as I progress in my own 30 years in the industry the less I trust that rather conservative instinct to think that readers want the same again uh, now maybe in genre fiction that's true you know in romance and crime maybe uh, in some parts of those markets but that I think is possibly a patronizing point of view you know so when you look in a manuscript what well, I think you one of the things you have to be open to is a sort of mystery about the grip of something you don't understand entirely, that you don't yet entirely know how that's going to find a readership and how you as a publisher are going to do that. But to, to, to be able to live in the sort of meta text moment of knowing that there's something here that is not familiar, perhaps. Mm. Well, that's what makes it classic. Yeah. You want to keep coming back to it because you maybe haven't quite understood it or there's something about it that needs to be thought about at another level. It's the same. It's the same idea. That so you tr obviously you're looking for. Um, well, here's another quote: to raise the general standard just as far as you can raise it without frightening the buyer away. Mm. To educate him insensibly to expect something a little better than he's used to. Uh, than he, sorry, than he used to be content with, and to do this without losing money. This is the fine art of publishing and its final justification. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant from Jeffrey. Because I, you know, the high watermarks goes back to that conversation about editors. You know, a lot of the high watermarks of a successful publishing business are our partnership, aren't they? You know, mm -hmm. the, the, and there's always one thing in that partnership, and that is brilliant editorial nous and radar mm -hmm. for the next, and perfectly sensible understanding of 
of the normal, if you like. You know, you, you can't always find the next all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so there's good, sensible judgments. And we have all sorts of tools for that these days. We have much better data about what's selling and what else is selling. And you know, so we have all those tools, and I think data is important. Mm. But, you know, the other side of that partnership around editorial is usually a sort of commercial leadership. And they, they sit in either that the publisher leader is the editorial mm -hmm. and that there's a sort of commercial operational person next to them or the commercial operational is in lead and there's mm. a genius editor. So but whichever way round it is. It's a mixed commercial form of art. Yeah. And it's a business. It's an industry. And quite often when interns come and sit in here and we, we talk about their desire to come into publishing, one is at pains to say, you know, you are joining an industry, you are joining something, but it's a very curious industry because mm. it undoubtedly has vocation at its heart and it undoubtedly has a kind of optimism and a belief in culture and what it can do and literature, certainly for everybody who works in this building. And I've worked in five publishing companies and I'd say the predominant member of staff is someone who has at their heart a, a, a love of reading and literature uh, at whatever level that they enjoy it, whichever part of reading they enjoy, there's still an unreasonable vocational love of that pursuit in and of itself and a belief that it's important in society, that mm. literacy matters, and, you know, all of those yeah. sorts of things. And I think that's probably why people in publishing are so decent and, and, and generally, well, I'm just talking from my own experience, people I've interviewed over the years, I don't think I've met anyone that's uh, not no. really decent. There's anxiety in some ways that some of the character might go out of the industry if if people are expected to be too... if it's too kind of... the ideas of data at the centre of it mm, and, mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, fitting in. Uh, well, it's like politicians polling all the time. Yeah, because you need... what you need is you do need the awkward squad, you know. Mm -hmm. You do need those people, but they are... As you say, I think always people whose heart lies in a kind of liberal, enlightened version of the world, uh, a genuine pursuit of uh, literature that excites them and, and that they believe will affect how we perceive the world and our lives, you know, and that's a societal thing. And, uh, I, I, you know, very, very rarely do you meet an editor, or I hope never, who thinks there's a limit on that. You know, this is mm -hmm. for these people and not for that. You know, uh, I think that kind of conversation as a kind of elite conversation mm. is not one present in my publishing life. You know, very much there's this sort of sense of ambition that you can, once you sort of break through the early adopting uh, readers and find that first, I don't know what, 10 to 15 to 20,000 people who read a book, you yeah. then know that it can travel so much further. Because of word of mouth, yeah. which is so key to Beginnings marketing and selling. How do you get people to talk about your books? Well, of course, you know, as a publishing generation, we've been gifted two things. You know, I, I will have no truck with the idea that as a publishing generation, we're in a woe is me world where, you know, nobody reads and mm -hmm. we're only killed by online. Yeah. Nonsense. You know, yeah. we've been gifted social media, a, a basically free way to communicate with enormous numbers of people and increasingly, uh, albeit that there's, <laughs> there's a flip side to this, an ability to segment and understand that audience and put next to people with other interests 
the things you think they might be interested in. This is extraordinary for a publishing generation. And secondly, the thing is, there's a lot of unpleasant people online too, though, or people that feel well, free because they're anonymous to be that way. Yeah, well, it, with every boon comes mm -hmm. danger, you yeah. know, and I would say, you know, of course, the great uh, problem that's come with, with the bursting of social media into the lives of writers, particularly, mm -hmm. is the exposure of them in their, you know, writers are largely speaking private and introverted people with, you know, a deep need for, for, for you know, their own self and time. Social media is, is, is brutal for that and, you know, every media industry I think is having to sit down and think hard about how we support as publishers, support, uh, protect, advise uh, our writers in how to cope with, with that really dark and unpleasant side to mm -hmm. social media which is the sudden anonymous access that that is something we have going to have to puzzle out but not just publishing you know mm -hmm. all forms of yeah. public notoriety whether it's politicians or celebrities or musicians or whatever it is they are we are all facing that how do you have a moderated and uh, and acceptable public exposure and also to be clear that no one has to do it Yep. We have social yep. media channels, which mm -hmm. we as Faber can use, and we can do so far more safely, probably. So that's your answer then? To how do you get people to talk about your books is to use social media? No, well, that's one of the gifts. Okay. You know, I'd say that social media has become you know, a, a way of actually managing a conversation. And, and I suppose what social media has done for Faber as well is to allow us another way of making public our identity and our history you know mm -hmm. so people do try to say that publishers brands mean nothing to consumers and i'm sure that up to a point that's true for many things but not for favor not for favor and no. it's true that favors identity doesn't mean anything to all consumers but there is a there are a group of readers uh, and and people who are interested in culture and the arts for whom favor is a notable identity and the joy of digital marketing and digital conversations is that we can be that with the people who care about us. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in the last two years, we've launched something called Faber Members. And Faber Members is a free to join at the moment. And we'll, some portion of it will always remain free. Sign up to just join us and for us to be able to communicate with you. And we are enjoying membership from thousands of people. Now, this was never possible before, mm -hmm. unless you were well, unless, I mean, PCA or something, you know. Um, yeah, but you think about foils and they had their book club. I mean, that, exactly, it's not yeah. that this is new. It's just a different way of None getting of this is at new. You know, yeah. John Murray was a bookseller. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah. He was, yeah. they were in his shop every day of the week. Well, uh, pretty well all Byron. publishers were, were booksellers That's at right. one point, right? The Penguin book chain was one of my first accounts when I was in sales. You know, I went and visited, there were probably 20 stores still in, in, in the UK, penguin stores. No, Double I didn't realize that. Stores in America, that. yeah. Oh, Pan yeah. Bookshop was a huge presence in the independent scene in the 1980s when I came into publishing, you know. So yeah. none of these stories, you're quite right, there's so many of these stories are, uh, are kind of everyone going to the dressing up box and taking out the same costumes but putting them on a bit differently. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. not like we haven't seen these things before. What we haven't seen is the, the extraordinary access and portability of ebooks, and what you could say probably with social media is to be able to walk into the cafe where people are talking about books, but for it to be a cafe containing everybody, that is different. And largely speaking, I, I see it as, as a huge opportunity when smartly deployed. 
Well, it's it's a community that you're yeah. developing, and also the fact that you you get you can have fans that your authors can communicate with, uh, you know, easily, yeah, and regularly. It's just going to help with the sale of, of books. Yeah, and yeah. and also I think as it evolves, because clearly the early years of social media have brought some serious questions. You mm. know, I mean, uh, Facebook in the dock and. Uh, you know, questions about how manipulative facial, social media can be. So this will all develop over time, I hope. It's a little bit like the early days of Telegraph polls, you know. And mm-hmm. When Telegraph was first rolled out in the States, mm-hmm. I was reading in a book recently, I'm trying to remember whose book, I think it might have been Ulibis's book, uh, about the, the, sort of ca- the sort of frontier cowboy nature of just companies sticking up Telegraph poles and wiring them up and people going out at night and chopping them down with axes, you know, because they didn't want a telegraph pole outside their house. And eventually it became clear you needed a public utility called AT&T or whatever it was, and you needed to legislate, to accommodate, and to do it in a way that was orderly, and so that people understood that there would be a benefit for this, they would have a telephone, you know, so or the telegraph would be, would help them in their lives. So I think it's it's these stories of new technologies always have this kind of friction and this combustibility about them. Well, look at uh, Facebook and, and Google and Twitter. They're providing these platforms. They're not providing any content. They're raping the content providers. Yeah. Uh, and they're and they're they're the ones that are determining what goes on and how it shows up. And that's a role for government. Yes, it is. And you know, there, I've heard the argument put that uh, I think Jonathan Tapin put it in his book, um, "Move Fast and Break Things," or whatever, I think, which is the motto of Facebook. And he, he put, I think, he puts forward the argument perhaps that that these are public utilities. You know, search yeah. is Google. Yeah. Um, social is Facebook. And when you add YouTube in uh, to, to the Google mission, you know, but I, I suppose that's just the question: is how will politicians and how will citizens agree to move forward these extraordinary mm-hmm. uh, innovations I mean they are mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary and they're all American they are which is interesting it is and quite a lot of the intellectual backup is British you know early design of artificial intelligence uh, and of course Far Eastern now as well so but the the, the, the exploitation and the, the genius of entrepreneurial yeah and that's created a new America, to be honest, mm-hmm. a new imperial America. We're just winding down here, just okay. so you're aware. Yeah. One of the other ways of getting information out and getting people to talk about a book would be advertising. And yet, Jeffrey and a, a whole range of others in the business have said that it's a really inefficient way of... Uh, of of getting the word out. In fact, it's used primarily as ground bait for authors to show what you yeah. can do for them if they come to your mm. to your house. And I guess the other point is that the 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 challenge is it's not books aren't like the same bar of soap. Each book has to be advertised itself as a unique product. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's the great challenge of publishing is that. So often you're you're back at base camp with every book you publish. You have you are at base camp. You know you you're well yeah. set up. Yeah. But you are not. You're having to rethink and respin and reimagine. I mean, I don't agree with Jeffrey about 
entirely about his, yeah. his view of advertising. You know, I think there's a time and a place for really pushing. You've got to really believe that you're going to push out into a much wider consumer audience for a book if you're going to start placing the big big bets on advertising. I think a little bit of advertising is completely pointless. I think mm. if you do it, do it. You know, really go for it. So right and now, how do you do it? How do you do so it? So then you have to. Um, so only this morning, I came from a company meeting where the marketing director was presenting what we'll do now for Milkman, but also what we'll do for our QI uh, book, uh, a facts book, and what we'll do for Sally Rooney, whose book we published in September. Mm-hmm. These are all three books which have progressed rapidly and dramatically QI over 10 years each year we have something that connects to a good audience uh, Milkman the moment has happened where suddenly millions of people have heard of Milkman so we now have to seal that and she know. uses her publishing her her prize money to pay off her debt I know that just again is a commentary on what how the how technology has affected the income of uh, Authors? Yeah. Well, I think it's probably more to do with just how hard one art can be. Or how many books are out there compared to yeah. what they used to be. Like that's that, right. I've heard there was 150,000 titles <coughs> published I, in Great Britain. I should think so. I should think Great so. Britain. You know, and, and that's not including the Self. Indie, indie author titles. You know? Yeah. But I, I think, you know, coming back to this question about advertising, that, you know, Ogilvy said about advertising half of every penny, every pound spent is wasted, just no one knows which half. And it remains true, but I Mm. think there's, you know, so our advertising campaign for Milkman will include big outdoor advertising, tube advertising, advertising in Ireland, but also social media advertising, you know, so so that it turns up next to people's searches. So how much is that going to cost? Tens of thousands of pounds. You know, mm-hmm. probably thirty, forty thousand pounds, something like that. Okay. You know, and that's that's a massive investment. But yeah, you so have to sell a hell of a lot of yeah, books to get that back. But if you're going to do that, you have to have the prospect of really amplifying. It's going back to that thing about beginnings. Yeah. You know, once you have a moment when something has has broken, then you put the big bet on it. Right. To start the year, putting your bets against the budget and saying we're slavishly going to do that this year. Is, is an error. You have to have contingency that you can amplify your bets once they start to work. And so that, that's one thing I'd say. The other so in other words, you've already got like 20, 30, 50,000 people that are talking about yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. You've yeah. started to have say, or you've had a good hardback reception, you're publishing in paperback, and you're going to go for it. You know, the days in which I suppose publishers spend a lot of money on co-op, you know, buying space in shops. The good news of a market that's driven out of uh, say for us, Warstones, Independence, Amazon, is that 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 doesn't soak up the, the the marketing budget anymore. It's much more about backing up the strong choices those retailers make with your support. But you can only do it a few times a year. Mm-hmm. If you try and do it more than that, you what you're doing is spread spreading a limited budget to nobody's benefit yeah. in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you, if you spent to the, if, if you budgeted to the hope that every book presents I'm afraid it never works out like that both in terms of revenue and in terms of what you're going to spend but of course I think the other thing about that's the other joy of digital marketing is you can do a whole heap more for everything yeah. and you can repurpose media far more quickly so you get a great series of reviews you can repurpose those, you can edit them yeah. down, you can circulate quotes. And you know, when we've got 140, 150,000 people following Faber on Twitter, 
you put that out there, you've probably grabbed a good number of eyeballs onto what you're doing. And I suppose with online advertising as well, because of the ability to segment and target, you're starting to surface your book in front of a more likely readership than just sticking it in Euston Station and knowing that it's very inefficient, but it does. there's a huge number of people walking through there, so some of them will see it and some of them will buy. And of course, that's the last thing really, is that buying is not about seeing an advert and saying, oh, I must go and buy that book. You know, it is also about backing up a, oh, I heard that book won the Man Booker Prize. Oh, I s- oh, I've seen an advert. Oh, I saw it in a shop. I've seen it in a shop again. A friend of mine said it was really good. Yeah. I pick it up. You need about, what, four or five? Four or five prompts, something yeah. like that. So it's adding a prompt in some ways. Mm-hmm. Just a final question, uh, and that is about booksellers. What can they do better now than they're currently doing? Hmm. Well, I I think I'm dealing with the best shops I've ever dealt with in my publishing life. First thing to say. This is Independence and Waterstones? And the sheer fact of the extraordinary efficiency of Amazon. You know, someone wants one of my books... They can have it in a day. Yeah. They can have it in two hours if they live in the right place. You that's know. why Amazon or that's why Bezos is the, the richest guy in the world. Yeah. Because they, uh, their service is, everyone that's just right. freaks out about how great it is. And that's a service for books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Kindle too. If I finish a book and I want to buy another one, I can do it in 30 seconds. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I look across the range of these extraordinary bespoke individual independents and mm-hmm. I look at... The, the Waterstones under James Dawn, which is a miraculous partner. Even you know? though it's even though it's a it's a monopoly, you've well, it doesn't behave like that, you right, know. And right. I I would say that our relationship with Waterstones from top to bottom is is very collegiate and partner. It's a partnership. Mm. And uh, even I, now that they've been uh, bought out by this uh, yeah, private uh, Elliot. yeah they're, they're, yeah Elliot yeah and, uh, you know there's what what the, you don't know who owns it. Well, you know who you know where it's owned. You know where it's, it's owned. And you the, don't know who owns it. Mm, yeah. So, but it hasn't manifested the, itself in any no, difference. A, and how long has that been? It's been a couple of years. No, no, not, not even yet. No, no, one year. Yeah, yeah, not yeah, even yeah, a year. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, six months or so. And um, but the leadership at Waterstones is very clear, very clear-minded, very transparent. They've got to grow the business. But an uh, equity group, they just want profit. They don't care about anything else. They will, but if they're they wouldn't have bought Waterstones if they didn't understand that creating profit out of that chain didn't happen when you treated it like a commodified factory. Yeah, it did already, happen yeah. when James turned it into a bookshop. And I suppose his investment now in you know building that up to be an even more successful book chain is something we should all support. Yeah, I mean, it's turned, he turned it around totally. in such a way. Don't and it also, he's allowed each store... The freedom to yeah. cater to their local... And there was a lot of scepticism at, at first mm. about the things he was paying attention to, i.e. Yeah. not to ebooks and not to uh, the digital market and not to the website. He mm. paid attention to the stores and how they looked and what they stocked and who was in them. Cafes. And Yeah, yeah and, I did and a bunch it, of them. And he, he really, you know, he was up the ladder looking at the signage and yeah because he's a bookseller through and through but with a very very strong and clear vision of how 
how you excite someone. It's just what we were talking about with formats earlier. Mm-hmm. When someone's in your shop, how do you make them excited by picking up the books that are in your store? You know, and then leaving... were brilliant at that. And leaving being really excited about the fact you're going to read this book now. Yeah. And, and he has also made some pretty bold statements about his support of the independent sector, that they are an ecology themselves, that they are interdependent, and mm. that he doesn't want to be a bruising chain yeah. in relation to the independent sector. Well, he still owns Daunt, doesn't he? He does, so, yeah. So. So, uh, and, of course, I think he, um, he's, he's shown us in some ways. Mm. He's part of that revolution back towards the object. Mm-hmm. The book as an object in a yeah. space with booksellers around it. You sell a lot more books when you do that well. Yeah. You sell a lot more. And that is proof. You know, none of us are in any doubt that whatever has been done at Waterstones has resulted in Waterstones selling more books and publishers who partner with them well selling a lot more books. Mm-hmm. And writers, therefore, connecting with a readership who, frankly, were a bit up in the air. You know, I mm-hmm. think they were trying digital and they were shopping in yeah, a slightly B-minus sort of way, you know. Mm. And suddenly, I meet so many people who say they've either got a fantastic independent or they... Waterstones is a different experience and they talk about the organic butcher and the grocer and the farmer's market and Waterstones and the vinyl store, yeah. you know, and the delicatessen and the bread shop, you know, and Waterstones has managed to put itself into that artisanal space mm. as an absolute hero on the high street, a magnet. Can't help but think of William Morris. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I live near Hammersmith. You know, no, so I, I, I live near, I walk over Hammersmith Bridge every morning and uh, of course that's you know William Morris's ground territory and, uh, yeah yeah and that you know extraordinary books that he made and um, there's a brilliant story about a, uh, a publishing company called Dover Press was it Doves Press Doves Press that's mm-hmm. it and there's a pub called the Doves Pub which is next door to where the Doves Press was and there's this great story it was I read it in this book uh, uh, it's about 50 typefaces and there's a story about Dove's Type mm. and Dove's Type was created for the press and it was run by a man called Cobden Sanderson Cobden Cobden yeah. Sanderson something like that yeah. and he worked with Emery Walker mm-hmm. and Emery Walker was Morris's great friend and his house I haven't been to it but it's apparently there. it's beautiful you've got to yeah. go around his yeah. house absolutely beautiful the, this publishing company talk about partnerships this publishing company's partnership demise they fell out Cobden Sanderson was sort of over assiduous about every page of every text and Emery Walker even though he was a tight man was like come on you know we've got to print some books right. so they fell out and they had a settlement which resulted that once Compton Sanson died that Emery Walker would inherit the type but Compton Sanson got more and more infuriated with this and so would go out at night with the type and throw it into the River Thames off yes. Off Hammersmith Bridge, where I walk every morning, and I always ah, think of the story. Right. Till he'd thrown it all away. So when he died, they went. They could find no type, and all there was was a few letters. They'd set some Christmas cards, and Emery Walker had that type, according to this story. But roll on nearly a hundred years, and this type fanatic designer Robert Green, I think his name was, was it Robert Green, decided to go down and at low tide and see if he yeah. could find it. And he found some. Mm-hmm. So he hired a scuba diver. He found more, and he created a digital font out of and he got a bit over obsessed by the looks of things but he found over I mean nearly 200 pieces of type 
And I love this story because partly because every day I walk over this bridge, mm-hmm. and but it reminds me of the ever the, always the flow of this story of technology. And we may have this sort of digital technology, and now we have a digital do- dove's type, but out of an artisanal beginning and out of a publishing partnership and a strange story around a publishing house uh, that results in you sort of boomeranging on a hundred years to have a new story about that story. And I think. You know, running a company that's nearly 90 years old, I'm always so kind of, uh, I don't know, moved and, uh, and inhabited by the fact these stories, all of the stories over 90 years, keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Same stories. We're doing so much of what our, uh, our predecessors were doing. We're doing it in a different age, with different technology, but at its heart, that's why it's a vocation, I think. At its heart, the story is the same. Writers create extraordinary work we partner with them we partner with booksellers and whoever and we find readers and the exciting thing about right now is I think we're at quite a high watermark of that new ecology settling down to be something where publishers and writers can feel optimistic about finding a readership how can you even consider leaving this company by not doing so (laughs) why would I ever you know Let's just uh, go out, if I, if I can ask you to do a bit of reading, sure. starting with weather. Sure. Starting from? Starting from weather, and I've just marked, uh, marked the passage. A little bit there. down to here. So, whether we realize it or not, books are the lifeblood of civilized humanity. Without books, science, history, philosophy, the drama, the novel could not exist at all. Even poetry could never have got beyond the stage of minstrel's lays. While religion and law would be the mysterious property of privileged castes of priests and lawyers. Without books, there could be no accumulation of knowledge, no free circulation of thought, no communication between the ages, no hope of solving the problems with which humanity is confronted, and no relief from their increasing pressure. Thanks for pleasure. The it's time. been a real it's pleasure to talk. Me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Geoffrey Faber. And Stephen Page, who is the CEO and publisher. Just CEO these days. CEO of uh, (laughs) Faber and Faber in his offices in Bloomsbury, London, England. Thanks again. Thank you.